Welcome back to the program. When the nuclear age dawned, people spoke of being present at the creation, that man suddenly had the ability to completely remake the world anew or even to destroy it. Today, in many ways, we have the same power. The environmental crisis we face, driven by the pillars of population growth, technology, and short-term thinking, give us the power to destroy the world or to remake it anew. In fact, much of the destruction may already be underway, and for some of it, it may be too late to reverse. We're entering what some call the sixth extinction. That's the title of a new book by my guest, Elizabeth Colbert. Elizabeth Colbert is a staff writer for The New Yorker. She's the author of the previous book, Field Notes from a Catastrophe, Man, Nature, and Climate Change. It is my pleasure to welcome Elizabeth Colbert to the program to talk about The Sixth Extinction, An Unnatural History. Elizabeth, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. It's great to have you here. We talk a lot about climate change and the impact that that's having. This really goes beyond that. Talk a little bit about the issues that you're focusing on in The Sixth Extinction. Well, it's, 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 a, it's a tale that sort of grew out of climate change and my you know, reporting on that, um, which was a book that I you know, published almost a decade ago, I guess, about climate change. And I was looking for, in, in, in a lot of ways, a follow-up. You know, I was going to do this book that was, I don't know, going to maybe tell people how to solve climate change or something like that. And I, I kept bumping up against this idea or fact, I guess, more to put it better, um, that climate change is really just one of the ways that people are altering the planet on a on a planetary global scale and on a geological scale, so in a way that is going to still be discernible, you know, many, many millions of years from now. And that is a really, uh, that's sort of the thought that, that certainly changed the way I look at the world and I hope uh, I convey in the book, I hope I convey it in, in, in the book in a way that changes the way that, that everyone looks at it. And so among the other ways that we're altering the planet um, on a permanent basis, we're putting a lot of carbon, when we put carbon into the air, we're also putting it into the water, into the oceans. When, when CO2 dissolves in water, it forms an acid, so we are acidifying the oceans. That's a very, very serious thing to be doing. Uh, we're moving species all around the world, so we're bringing together these evolutionary lineages that have been separated for, in many cases, tens of millions of years. That can have very, very serious effects. Uh, we're, you know, just altering the surface of the earth. I think everybody realizes that. Uh, we've, we've altered, you know, at least 50% of the of the land surface of the earth. So that obviously has a huge impact on species. So there's these are all, you know, tr- traces that we're going to leave that will be, for all intents and, pur- and purposes, permanent. And unfortunately, one of the unifying themes of all this uh, is, is, is extinction. All of these changes uh, are happening very rapidly and and, and, and too rapidly for, for many creatures to keep up with. And as you look back at this, as you look in your reporting at this collision between civilization and the ecosystem of the planet, what do we find to have been the tipping point when all of this really started to take hold, when we started to see even the beginnings of this extinction? Well, I, I think that, you know, one of the interesting revelations of the last you know, even even just decade or even just years, a lot of important papers have been published, is that this this process of altering the planet is, is really quite old. You know, we, we we have been human beings have been altering the planet on a pretty significant scale for a pretty long time. So for example, 
you know, people arrived in Australia, modern humans arrived in Australia about 50,000 years ago, which is quite an amazing fact. It was not easy to get to Australia 50,000 years ago. Um, and when they got there, they encountered this extraordinary array of very large animals, these huge marsupials that are called rhinoceros wombats uh, that seem to have looked like sort of like giant guinea pigs, um, huge kangaroos, huge birds, you know, sort of ostrich-like birds, but, but not ostriches, not related to ostriches, um, huge tortoises with horns growing out of their heads, and pretty pretty rapidly, within a couple thousand years, all of those animals were gone. And that almost certainly had to do with the arrival of people. That, that was no coincidence. And we see that you know, over and over again, that when people arrived in a new place, um, the big animals, the slow-to-reproduce animals, uh, wink out. And so I think that, you know, on some level, this goes back uh, way, way further than, than, than we might like to even think. One of the questions, though, is, and, and I think one of the things that people don't follow all the way through to its logical conclusion, is the way this potentially will impact us at this point, that it's not just a question of altering and eliminating these species, but it circles back to have a direct impact on our lives. Well, I, I think that's one of the great, great questions, of course, you know, how is this going to going to impact us? And unfortunately, you know, it's a very, very risky um, business that we, we've embarked upon. Um, our, our impacts are ratcheting up, you know, just extraordinarily at an amazing rate. For example, you know, the amount of CO2 that we're putting in the air continues to increase every single year. Um, and you know, what the impact of that is going to be on unhumanity, on human society, which has been founded on a lot of stability when you think about it, uh, is, is, is sort of hard to predict. We are very, very unpredictable creatures, but it's not the kind of gamble that I think, you know, smart money would, would make, let, let, let's put it that way. But in fact, it is the kind of gamble we seem to be taking at the moment. Oh, absolutely. You know, we are we are taking a sort of, I guess I would say we're, we're we're taking an uninformed risk. We're just, you know, blithely marching along as if there were no risks. I think it's really, really important. And, you know, many, many people have made this point. I'm certainly, you know, not the only person out there making it, that we, we better make some more informed choices. And climate change is a really key and obvious example. You know, we, we know there are huge risks uh, that we are taking, you would think that, that for our own sakes, and certainly for the sake of our kids and our grandchildren, we would try to minimize those risks. Um, we don't seem to be doing that. We seem to be denying that there are those risks, but just by denying them, you know, doesn't make them go away. And in many ways, even beyond denying them, we also believe, sometimes blindly, I suppose, in technology that somehow we, before the risk actually happens, we will figure out a, solu- a technological fix. Right, exactly. We are, we love that thought. And, you know, the fact that there are 7.2 billion of us on the planet seems to support this idea that, well, you know, whatever happens, we just blithely, you know, go go on. And, and, and so far, you know, population, human population has kept increasing. So, yes, you know, you, you would have to say that that's true. That trajectory has so far been ever upward. And, you know, it, it's, it's possible that that, that that will continue. But just 
I, I, I use the line um, from you know that you get on a mutual fund perspective in the book. You know, past performance is no guarantee of future success, and the history of life uh, teaches us that. Many you know very very dominant uh, groups of animals, animals that were along, along around for a lot lot longer than human beings or even you know primates have been around, uh, are now gone, and something did them in. Um, it wasn't their own you know action in general. Uh, but it, there is no, you know, there are no guarantees in, in this business. This business which is life. Talk a little bit about the species that have disappeared thus far and what impact that's had in places like the Great Barrier Reef and the Andes and, and the rainforests. Well, I mean, the reefs are very, you know, really interesting and, 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 and haunt, you know, haunting story. Um, Reefs are a major ecosystem. They're home to probably millions of species. They're quite amazing places. One of the things I got to do in the process of reporting this book was go to the Great Barrier Reef, which is, I would say, one of the most spectacular places on Earth. Um, it stretches over 1,500 miles, and when you uh, look down on a reef, you see just this amazing array of life. Uh, there's really no, you know, this shimmering of uh, uh, crowded, crowded, you know, almost city city of life, let's say, underwater, incredibly beautiful fish and sharks and rays and turtles and giant clams and things, you know, beyond your imagination. And there's really no analog on land. You never see that much life uh, on land, even, even in the rainforest. And reefs are being very, very severely affected by a lot of different things. The, the Great Barrier Reef has lost about half of its coral cover just in the last 30 years, which is very, very alarming. And there are pretty um, robust predictions that if we continue you know, on, our, on our merry way, owing to a combination of, of climate change and ocean acidification, you know, reefs are just going to cease to be able to function by around the middle of this century. And then you would lose this you know, sort of major, major ecosystem and what the ripple effects of that would be are, are, are hard to predict. You know, there have been times in Earth's history where there's what are known as reef gaps, where there have been no reefs, uh, and they tend to be associated with some very, very severe crises uh, in the history of life. One of the things you've talked about is that we don't really have experience with what we're going through right now, that we've never been in a situation where we've been both responsible for the extinction of species and had to sort of manage it at the same time. Right. I mean, you know, to, to, to go back to the um, example of, of, of Australia and of, 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 you know, humans reaching Australia and then over the course of, of many generations probably wiping out the, the large fauna, the megafauna, they, they were probably, you know, completely unconscious of, of, of what they were doing. And it was it was something that, you know, took place over many generations. People people really didn't realize presumably what was going on. They didn't have written records that they handed down at that point. We are in this very, very unusual, I'd say unique position really where we have such sophisticated science that we have, you know, very good predictive powers. Um, we're watching these things happen. We have, you know, we, we occupy all the continents. We have very good data on a lot of species. Um, and we're watching this happen in real time. Uh, we we are aware of it, and we have to, you know, sort of. I guess my point would be in the book 
uh, we need to really bring this to the top of our awareness and 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 and, and make some choices as opposed to just blindly sort of blundering uh, into a potentially you know very disastrous future. What do you think is the primary thing that prevents us? from facing up to this and making the choices that we might have to make? Well, I I don't have a, you know, sort of complete psychological profile. I think that one of the interesting things is humans are a product of, of, of evolution just like all other organisms. And I don't think it's one of the fascinating facts about us that we're, you know, while we're extremely clever, we're capable of, of these amazing technologies, we're not very good. It doesn't seem like we're very good at planning very far uh, in the future, um, even though we're capable of doing things that have impacts that will last, you know, for all intents and purposes forever. So Ed Wilson, E.O. Wilson has this line about how we have, you know, Stone, stone Age brains and, and godlike technologies, and when you bring those together, it, it's not necessarily a good outcome. Talk a little bit about previous extinctions and what, in fact, we might learn from looking at the historical record in that regard. Well, there's a lot, a lot of work going on right now looking at these um, previous five major mass extinctions, which are sometimes known as the big five. And one, you know, the the, the most recent, the, the fifth, the one that did in the dinosaurs about 66 million years ago, that that there's a pretty broad consensus that that was caused by an asteroid impact. And when that was discovered, which was not very long ago, it was only 20, 30 years ago, um, people went back and they, they kind of thought, well, that would be very elegant if each of these extinctions was caused by an asteroid impact. And they went back and they looked for signs of asteroid impact at each one of these moments, and they did not find them. So right now, you know, there is no one cause that we can identify for mass extinctions. What seems to unite them is that they're actually very, very freakish events. The world changes fast in a way that uh, most, many organisms have, do not have the capacity to adapt to. They have never encountered this in their evolutionary history. Um, and so in that sense, we, you know, are, are a logical agent of, of, of mass extinction because we are also new to evolutionary history, you know, intelligent, you know, creatures like, like humans who who are really very different in, in many ways from, from other forms of life. And, and our technologies um, change the world very, very rapidly and, and, and in ways that you can imagine many, many creatures can't keep up with. In that sense, we really don't know what the consequence will be from a partial extinction, in other words, 20%, 30%, 40% of species disappearing, we really don't know what the tipping point might be in terms of its larger consequences. No, exactly. And I mean, it, 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 we, you know, obviously none of us have been around through these, through these mass extinctions. Um, in the past, I quote a, a British paleontologist who says, says that one of the things that seems to happen during these moments of, of very rapid change is that the rules of the survival game change so that groups of very dominant you know, organisms, such as the dinosaurs, who were around for quite a long time and did very, very well, uh, are suddenly gone. There's some reason for that every species of dinosaur was, was done in uh, in that last extinction event. We don't know what it is. We don't know what made them particularly 
vulnerable and allowed a few mammals, you know, who are our evolutionary ancestors, to creep through that extinction. But when the rules of the survival game change, um, you, you don't really know exactly what's going to come out at the other end. So, so that is another reason why it's just a very, very big gamble. Talk a little bit about climate change itself and the ways in which the climate change is exacerbating some of these other dangers. Well, climate change um, is occurring very, very rapidly. It's occurring, you know, pretty much everywhere. Um, and what happens, what we, what we can very, very clearly see is that many, many species are on the move, right? They're, they're migrating, they can now, they're migrating towards the poles, they're migrating upslope, and this, you know, goes for plants as well as animals, goes for things that can't even move but can now seed themselves, they spread their seeds, and those seeds now germinate at higher and higher elevations or, or higher and higher latitudes. And when you have everything needing to migrate to track this climate, right, and it's been estimated that to track the climate, species would have to move something like, you know, 30 feet a day, I mean, incredible, everything on the march at a pretty rapid rate, then what happens when you reach a barrier? So, you know, species are capable of tremendous amounts of migration. We, we know that by looking at, for example, you know, the last ice age was a major climatic change and, 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 and you know, pretty much most things made it through that transition by, by, by moving. And so we know they are capable of, of moving quite long distances, even tiny little organisms. But they, when you put up these barriers, as we have, you know, what about, you know, the city of, of San Francisco, the city of New York, the city of L.A.? Uh, what about a road even? A lot of species don't even want to cross a road. Uh, what happens when you reach, you know, a cornfield where there's nothing for, you know, many, many species to eat? Um, so we don't really know what's going to happen as we create the situation where many, many species are on the move, but also where we have put up these roadblocks. So what, what, that's another situation where the, where the rules of the game have just really uh, been altered. Elizabeth Colbert, her book just out from Holt is The Sixth Extinction, An Unnatural History. Elizabeth, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Oh, thanks for having me. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back. <laughs> 